Hey, this is Jim McPherson, Autonomous Law at SafeSelfDrive.com on Twitter, and welcome to the Autonomous Lawcast, the inaugural Autonomous Lawcast. My guest today is Spencer Palkey. And Spencer, you want to state your appearance? Yes, indeed. Spencer Palkey for the plaintiff. <laughs> the plaintiff, always the plaintiff. Yes. And what firm are you with, Spencer? I'm at a firm in San Francisco called Walkup, Melodia, Kelly, and Schoenberger. It's been around since 1959, so we're coming up on, what, 60 years now. Yeah, and you know, in the interest of full disclosure, I have played on the Walkup softball team for 12 years now, I think. And uh, Spencer has referred cases to me. I have attempted to refer cases to their firm. I have nothing but respect for the Walkup law firm. But this is not a advertisement. Spencer is a good friend and guest and one of the most knowledgeable attorneys on subjects like negligence, auto accidents, and product liability. And that's why I want him to be a part of this podcast. So thanks for coming, Spencer. Thank you very much for having me. I've been excited about this for some time. Yeah. And my followers might know I was just on the Autonocast, which is the, the gold standard for podcasts in autonomous vehicles. And I was honored to be their guest and I just wanted to talk and talk and talk. <laughs> so I have to start my own show so that I can uh, hear myself. And others can hear you. Yeah. So, you know, here we are, we're covering a part of the autonomous vehicle um, spectrum that is not getting a lot of attention. And it really should because the way the legislature has proposed bills to regulate or not regulate autonomous vehicles, a lot of the enforcement responsibility is going to fall on us, on we, the plaintiff's attorneys. And so, Spencer, can you tell me a little bit more about what plaintiff's attorneys do? Well, it's a really broad question uh, because we, I would say, do a lot of things. In its most general sense, we represent people who have been injured by virtue of the negligence or in other cases, other types of liability, but most broadly represent people who have been injured on account of the negligence of others, whether that's other people, other corporate entities, other governmental entities. We represent people who have suffered uh, injuries on account of carelessness. That's what negligence means. Same thing uh, on, a, on account of the carelessness of others. So that, that's the broadest sweep. Now you can dive into that from many angles and go down sort of many silos because there's many different types of negligence out there. There's everything ranging from uh, uh, premises liability, liability, that is dangerous conditions of property, to, as we'll talk about today, uh, automotive cases, to products liability cases, to medical malpractice cases. So under the umbrella of negligence, you have a whole array of types of cases of which my firm handles really all of them. So that, that's the, that, that is what we do in the most general sense. I can dig down into any of those that, that you might want. And insurance plays a big part in all of this, does it not? It does. I mean, it absolutely does because, you know, I was actually just talking to my wife about this as we were as walking over here to, to get on the pod. And absolutely, insurance is a crucial part of this because, and we can get into sort of risk spreading and that kind of thing, but 
I've thought this for a long time. Any individual person can cause way, way more injury to somebody else than they typically can pay for themselves. And so that's why people like me and you know, I would say all reasonable people buy insurance so that they can spread the risk of loss, right? So, you know, if I was to injure somebody, I have insurance for it that would be able to compensate them uh, in excess of my own personal ability to do that. So that, I mean, that is where we get that phrase, you know, here's my insurance policy, like quite literally, that is the backstop that um, allows the system to, to work. So it, it is integral to it and, you know, in different ways, but absolutely. Right. And if you're a person walking down the street and you're struck by a vehicle driven by a negligent person who has only the minimum liability insurance and no appreciable assets of their own, that injured person is essentially out of luck, are they not? Absolutely. And I, I can't tell you how many times in my career, I mean, I've, been, I've been doing this 10 years myself, and um, I have had that conversation with so many people who themselves have suffered grievous injuries and we we look under every imaginable rock to see what type of coverage might be available and it i wish i could say it didn't happen i wish i could say it didn't happen much but it often happens where the situation you just described is where we find ourselves and i'm advising my client i'm saying we've looked everywhere and even though your injuries are very significant we can only make a very small uh recovery for you um so that absolutely happens and it's it is a double tragedy, an injury that is uncompensated. In California now, the state requires a minimum $5 million insurance, a liability bond, if you will, or you know, an insurance policy or a self-insured retention. Um, they want to make sure that any injuries or accidents caused by automated vehicles can be paid for. Where does $5 million arrive from? Is $5 million a lot? Is it a little? Have you seen accidents where people are injured? in amounts greater than 5 million? Yeah, is it a lot, is it little? It, it depends on the case, right? You could have a case that's, you know, theoretically worth, you know, a few dollars, I suppose, or I should just say some smaller amount. You could have a, you know, you could legitimately have $15,000 worth of injuries. That, that's possible. Uh, that's on the very low end of the spectrum. Now, sadly, on the high end of the spectrum, I suppose there's a ceiling somewhere, but I mean, the issue is that, um, this comes back to me saying that, you know, people can cause more harm than they can personally make good on in terms of paying for. I mean, if you have a, a young person um, who is, I don't know, 18, 19, 20 years old, and they are very, very seriously injured uh, in uh, a vehicular collision such that they avoid the worst outcome of death, thank goodness, but they need care for the rest of their life to deal with a brain injury or to, do, to deal with paralysis or quadriplegia. That is extraordinarily expensive to have 24-hour care for the rest of your life. It, it would be multiples of $5 million. So, you know, we've had those cases. And so I guess on the one hand, uh, you know, I am pleased that there is, you know, you know, this, you know a $5 million requirement that's going to capture the vast, vast majority of cases. But it would leave some people very much out in the cold because they will assuredly suffer injuries well in excess of, you know, $5 million. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, as long as we pay for the harm that we cause, we should be able to do what we want. But, you know, they're, what they're missing is the, the social sanction against what they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. So Mark Zuckerberg is a very rich man. He could walk down the street, punch your teeth out, and then throw $1,000 at you and say, go to the dentist. 
but we don't want him doing that in the first place. So the state has laws against it. And, you know, there will be a question, I think, for autonomous vehicles about whether you just pay for what you did or whether there's some way to impose a criminal sanction if what you did was Mm -hmm. due to some intentional oversight or let's say you program an autonomous vehicle and say, you know what, Uh, we're not going to cover skateboarders. They're too unpredictable and chances are we'll never come across one. And if we do, we'll pay for the injury when it happens. You know, and you write this in an email to the boss and boss says, okay, let's release the car. And sure enough, it eventually finds the skateboarder, injures them. Is it going to be enough just to pay that injured skateboarder? Or should we also extract a higher payment out of them uh, or put someone in jail because of their recklessness? You know, that's, that's a hypothetical, rhetorical. But yeah, if you have any thoughts on that. Absolutely. I mean, so there are, you know, as you know, and of course, I've known for many, many years, but it's, it's worth us talking about a little bit. You know, there's, there are gradations of the damages that are available to an injured plaintiff. There is what is called compensatory damages, those damages designed precisely to compensate, as you may have guessed from the word compensatory, compensate for the injuries the person suffered. And that, that falls into two buckets. You've got, on the one hand, economic damages, those damages that you can put a dollar figure to. That's medical bills in the past. In the future, it's lost wages. It's lost future earning capacity. Those things that you can put a specific dollar amount, that's an economic damage. In the other bucket, you have non-economic damage, which is pain, discomfort, emotional distress, all of those non-economic ways that we are injured, ways you can't you can't put a dollar figure on what your pain is, but it's very significant. So those two elements of damages, economic and non-economic, they make up compensatory damages. And that's that that is absolutely crucial. And if you think about the average you know, the average vehicle versus pedestrian case, you know, quite candidly, um, it, it's, it's uncommon, although I've had it, I've had the case, but it's, it's uncommon that the, in that average vehicular negligence case that the defendant, that is the person at fault, that they were anything more than negligent. You know, they, they looked away at the wrong moment. They drove three miles an hour too fast. Uh, they were distracted by their radio. They glanced at their phone. All of those things are bad. But we wouldn't throw somebody in jail on account of that. And we, I think, know that that type of negligence happens on our roads very frequently. And it's hard to find the person who's never done that before. Uh, And so in those situations, I don't think the sort of moral culpability goes along with that to call them a bad person or to throw them in jail. In those situations, the plaintiff is going to be able to seek compensatory damages to be, quote unquote, made whole for their injuries. I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, Above that, and, and this is something you allude to, you know, is the topic of punitive damages. Now, conceptually, they are, I think, I think they make a ton of sense because they they deal with exactly that situation you're describing. Because I'm, you know, I'm sort of imagining the the way this plays out, whether it's our, you know, our skateboarders or some other risk that, for whatever reason, it is known by, uh, you know, a self-driving car company or software company, however, you know, whatever actor we're talking about, it's known to them that X number of skateboarders or bicyclists or, you know, babies and strollers or elderly people or, you know, people walking between 4.55 and 5 p.m. at the wrong angle of glare such that it affects the sensors in the car, etc. If you know that there's going to be some amount of uh, injury that will happen and then you launch even despite that, then it does open the door to the notion of punitive damages, which is, wait a minute, you, you went live with this product knowing that it would cause X uh, injuries. 
Uh, and so I know this answer is getting long. Let me just say that. No, this that, is great. Please keep going. Uh, that once we get into that level of punitive damages, th these are damages that are not designed at all to compensate. Uh, at all. That's not their, their purpose whatsoever. Their purpose is instead to punish and deter the conduct of the defendant so that the defendant does not do these things in the future, does not subject us willfully, wantonly, intentionally, knowingly to those kinds of risks. And so with, the, with, the, with punitive damages, the jury can award more and in some cases well more than what the compensatory damages are with the purpose of telling the defendant that, hey, this is not okay in our society. We are not okay with you subjecting all of us to this or to that risk. Now, I said conceptually punitive damages are punitive damages are a great idea that's because many people have heard of punitive damages read about it in the newspaper seen it online that kind of thing as if it is something that happens commonly or frequently or that when it actually does occur it sticks or it has any great impact on defendants uh, on account of our Supreme Court and its jurisprudence, that is, you know, its its view of the law over the last several years and its increasing conservatism, which is only exacerbated by the current circumstances with Justice Gorsuch. On account of that, punitive damages are really a shell of what they are conceptually designed to be. There is, first and most importantly, there is effectively a cap on punitive damages that is 10 times the compensatory damages. Uh, the punitive damages can't exceed Basically, they can't exceed 10 times what the compensatory damages are. Now, that's a problem because that allows, in your hypothetical with our skateboarders and our self-driving car company, allows them in their boardroom or you know, in their email exchanges to actually calculate it out and say, well, let's see, um, you know, the cost of injury to one skateboarder, uh, let's say, I don't know, it's a million-dollar case, um, and uh, let's say we get hit on punitives. Uh, that'll be up to 10, you know, 10 X, uh, on the 1 million. So that's 10 million punitives, 1 million in the compensatory damages. That's $11 million, but we can make 50 million bucks on this deal, uh, if we launch. Uh, so it's all to the good for us. Um, we don't, you know, the punitives aren't going to stop us from doing it. So the way the Supreme court has hamstrung juries quite to the contrary of what you might read in the news, it has rendered punitive damages, unfortunately, far less, of a tool for preventing companies from doing knowingly dangerous things. And that's a fantastic explanation. It, the way you describe it, the punitive damages were intended to punish and deter. That's the regulatory aspect that's being, you know, abrogated by the legislature, by NHTSA, and the burden is on our shoulders to punish and deter bad behavior. But you know, that's not going to happen in every case. We might mostly have negligence cases. When we do have a punitive case, you know, these caps that have been placed on us are going to limit their effectiveness. And it just becomes another cost calculus. Exactly. Now, I would say, and I, and, I, and we can talk about this topic whenever you want, but um, with regard to the regulation from NHTSA and whether they are, you know, they're just passing the buck on to us. You know, I have I have some thoughts on whether that's a good or a bad thing, or what. But what if it's good? What if it's bad? But I will leave this to you, sir, to guide us along. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's shift gears. I took the liberty of looking at the basic standard of care that a human has to have when they're driving a vehicle, and this comes straight out of the California jury instructions. KC four hundred. KC seven hundred, sir. Oh, yeah, that's sure. The <laughs> but I also downloaded. Being... The... Go ahead. You're jumping ahead of me because I downloaded four hundred one as well. So yeah, yeah. 
you're not wrong. You're just ahead of me. So I'll, I'll read it for the audience. A person must use reasonable care in driving a vehicle. Drivers must keep a lookout for pedestrians, obstacles, and other vehicles. They must also control the speed and movement of their vehicles. The failure to use reasonable care in driving a vehicle is negligence. So that's a great little explanation. And the directions for use, this is a citation from a case, Zarzana versus Neve Drug Company, 1919 case. It says, aside from the mandate of statute, a driver of a motor vehicle is bound to use reasonable care to anticipate the presence on the streets of other persons having equal rights with himself to be there. Are you aware, Spencer, that an, an autonomous shuttle crashed yesterday in Las Vegas? I was aware. I, I saw in on one of the listservs I'm on, I saw you know, it posted. I haven't read about it though. Yeah. We're going to have to do some more research and maybe include that in another podcast yep. at a later date. But uh, this seems like a case where, you know, I'm just anticipating where the vehicle was probably doing the right thing, but had it exercised the care that a person might exercise, it would have looked out for itself and taken some sort of evasive action. But we'll see. That's and similar then, to the point you're making on the Autonocast, I think. Uh, right. Exactly. And so let's get to 401 is the basic standard of care. This is just how we comport ourselves in our daily activities, right? Negligence is the failure to use reasonable care to prevent harm to oneself or to others. A person can be negligent by acting or by failing to act. A person is negligent if he or she does something that reasonably careful person would not do in the same situation or fails to do something that a reasonably careful person would do in the same situation. You, the jury, must decide how a reasonably careful person would have acted in plaintiff's or defendant's situation. So that's what a jury, that's what's read to a jury, correct? After they've had all the facts? Yep. And I, if I, I should just take one minute on this. It's kind of like part of every closing argument you would, you would make mm -hmm. in trial is you would take a moment to sort of explain what these are. You know, there's the judicial council, I think quasi-public entity uh, in California that uh, is made up of very respected attorneys and judges, retired judges, that kind of thing. And they draft what's called jury instructions, which, it, you know, it's so second nature to us, you know, jury instructions. But I think that hearing that for the first time, somebody might say, well, what do you mean? Like, you know, enter the courtroom at 8.15 a.m. or like, what a jury instruction. <laughs> uh, but these are, these are distillations, distilled versions of what the law in our state is based upon I mean, Jim pointed out the 1919 case, but based upon many, many hundreds or thousands of cases that have happened over time, the Judicial Council distills down what the actual law is. And of course, it's also based on statutory law. But so the jury doesn't have to, and it never would it be asked to do it. Uh, so the jury doesn't have to sort of make sense of a thousand cases. It's been distilled down to these nice, clean explanations. And California does a lot of works hard to make them in simple, you know, sort of language that real people use. Um, so they know what the law is when they're trying to decide if the defendant did or didn't effectively break the law. Standard of care is a question for the court. Well, the, what the standard of care is, is a question for the court. Whether it was breached is a question for the jury. Exactly. But we are at a point right now where we're not entirely clear what the standard of care is for an automated vehicle. The two instructions I just read both refer to a person. So we have to decide if after an autonomous vehicle crash, we are going to treat it, we're going to anthropomorphize it, treat it as a person and decide how it performed compared to other people, 
Or are we in an entirely different area of law that we haven't discussed yet, which is product liability? And I got to go with the, the latter of those two. Uh, this is, to me, you know, and, and you are the expert on this with regard to what is happening in terms of the discussions within industry about, you know, how these things are looked at. But to, to you know, somebody who practices products liability law and, of course, handles, you know, vehicular negligence cases as well, I have, you know, sort of no doubt that this, the question is not, you know, any comparison of, uh, how a machine would do as compared to a human being in terms of determining if there's you know liability. Uh, this is a separate area of law, a separate section of Casey, the jury instructions, which we can talk about here in a minute. But you know there have been lots of times where there have been a technological advances in our society. I mean, not lots of times. It's a constant thing. It happens all of the time where some technological advancement supplants uh, something that humans did before. And just because it's some advancement doesn't mean we're asking ourselves, you know, how did this compare to how humans did it before? We're still wanting our machines to be safe. They, they still can't, they have to be free of defects, even if they replace human work, such as driving a car or, you know, packing boxes or doing any number of things. So let's talk about product liability. Can you give us an example of a case you handled where you had to sue the manufacturer of a product? And what are your considerations? Are you looking at experts? Are you looking at, you know, break it down for us. There's the essential elements. There's manufacturing defects, design defects, and failure to warn. Yep. In some sense, so let's talk about products liability. Remember at the very beginning, you asked me, you know, what, what do you do? What, what does a plaintiff's attorney do? And I said, well, there's a broad range of things and different sort of silos or buckets we can we can dig into. This is one of them, uh, and it's called products liability law. And it focuses on whether the products we use or are in society with us are safe. And Ed said earlier, too, that you know my focus is on, by and large, on negligence, the failure to use reasonable care. But when you get into products liability law, the test for fault or the test for liability actually changes. It changes to something called strict liability. And that's what you referenced there, Jim, with, uh, you know, uh, defective design, manufacturing defect, or a failure to warn. The idea is, and I say idea sort of guardedly because it doesn't exactly play this play out this way um, in the real world. The idea is that if a product does not, in California, if a product does not uh, act as a reasonable consumer would expect it to and causes an injury by virtue of that failure, the defendant is liable, period. We don't have to get into whether or not they designed it this way negligently or not. It's just the condition of the device violating my expectations as a consumer. That is all it takes to establish liability, theoretically. Unfortunately, you're not going to find many cases that are contested more vigorously than products liability cases for reasons we can talk about. But, oh, that's my daughter. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we should let everyone know, besides being a great attorney, you have recently become a father for the first time. Yes, so I have. Congratulations, Spencer. Thank Are you, you getting any sleep at all, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> we're getting enough to get by. Um, we're, we're uh, we, you know, fortunately, they're so cute. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you're a hero dad for doing a podcast and uh, taking care of your daughter. So thank well, you for being on. Sure. Um, I sure. don't want to interrupt your train of thought, but yeah. uh, I like where you're going with the product liability. Um, I've tried to explain this on the Autonocast, and I stumbled because I don't have as much experience as you. But basically, we're no longer concerned about what the manufacturer was doing on the line, right? We don't care if they were negligent. We don't care how you know, diligent they were in searching their product for defects. Once you've met your burden of showing that you were injured by a defective product, the burden then shifts to the defendant to prove that your injury resulted from some kind of misuse. Well, sort of, you know, so we should, we should um, classify this even a little bit more uh, carefully. And I guess I should say, you know, we're talking about California substantive law here. We're not talking about Nevada or Maine or Nebraska or some other place. Now, so that means that that you know, I'm describing the state of the law in one state, California. Now, the issue with that, you know, that's actually not a bad, not an issue because you know, California law has long been a leader in really nationally in terms of what the law becomes in other states. So, you know, even though I'm just talking about one state, you know, fortunately, it's you know, the state of California, which plays a leading role in really a lots of areas of law, but actually, most particularly products liability, which developed in the 40s, 50s, and 60s through our Supreme Court. So there are three avenues of products liability. There are design defect, uh, manufacturing defect, or failure to warn. Design defect is where there's a problem with the design itself. That means that if, if I have one of these products sitting in my living room, everybody's product sitting in every living room across the country or the world is also defective in the exact same way because it's inherent in its design that it has a defect. Manufacturing defect is where the one that's sitting in my living, my living room happens to be the dangerous one because it didn't come out right. right. Something happened in the manufacturing process. And then failure to warn is similar to a design defect in that the warnings associated with the device are bad. And it's not like you have a manufacturing defect with your warnings. I mean, they're all bad or they're, or they're all okay. Within that first one, here's where I wanted to just add this in. You know, within that first one, design defect law in California, there are two jury instructions that speak to this. One is the one I mentioned a moment ago, uh, which is the consumer expectations test. And, you know, basically it says that if a product did not perform as safely as an ordinary consumer would have expected it to perform when used or misused in an, in, in an intended or reasonably foreseeable way, the defendant's liable. Okay, so there's actually a lot there, and it does get to your misuse. Um, but I just wanted to add in that's not the only avenue. There's also the risk benefit test. So um, a plaintiff could go to trial and could say that this product is defective, one, because a reasonable consumer would not expect it to do what it did. But two, they could say also, it harmed me, period. This product harmed me, period. And then under that, this, this second theory, this risk benefit approach, the defendant gets to say, well, yeah, okay. Uh, my product hurt you, but the benefits of my design outweigh the risks of the design. And you get into a fight about whether or not the benefits of the design outweigh the risks or not. And it becomes a defendant's burden to prove that you know their design was more beneficial than it was dangerous. So those are the two avenues to go down. So it's not necessarily that uh, there's going to be um, you know, a sequential step where, you know, there's a fight about whether it was used or, or misused in a reasonably foreseeable way. That's sort of part and parcel of uh, the plaintiff's case uh, if you're going to be using the consumer expectations test, the first one I discussed. And that's really the one that's used the most. And it's really up to the plaintiff, correct? Plaintiff can satisfy either one of two tests to yep. establish their case? Exactly. 
So you can see that in the defective product uh, universe, that automated vehicles could raise issues under all three, design, manufacture, or inadequate warning. There's going to be a lot of litigation related to that. Inadequate warning, you can imagine, oh, say a level three car, and you're trusting it to drive you down the freeway and give you 10 seconds warning of something, you know, but maybe, gosh, I'm having a hard time imagining the hypothetical. Well, um, I think it's kind of interesting what you're getting at. I mean, it, you could certainly have, I don't know if you're going to say that, well, I was supposed to get 10 seconds and I only got eight seconds. So that is a uh, defect in the warning uh, that it gave me. I think that's actually more of a design defect there. But I could imagine, hey, I went and bought my new you know, level three uh, automated vehicle at the dealership and they didn't tell me how it would work. I was not told or described or shown uh, how a handoff would happen where I have to take back control of my vehicle. I wasn't taught that. I wasn't shown that as a general matter so that when it does happen, even if it does give me the, you know, the requisite 10 seconds or two seconds or whatever we're saying it would have, even in that situation, I'd say, well, wait a minute, this, I, I was not properly shown how to operate this thing. So that would be a problem with the warning. Totally agree. And, you know, there is an accident that comes to mind. It was a year ago. Uh, Joshua Brown died in a Tesla he had set to autopilot, which is considered a level two automation. Um, he received warnings to touch the steering wheel repeatedly. I would think that, you know, not in that particular case, but in another case, you might ask whether the warning given was adequate to the risk that ultimately caused the harm. You know, you could be warned to touch the wheel, but are you warned about the kangaroo that just hopped about your lane? Obviously, under a risk-benefit analysis, a manufacturer might think it has a better shot, right? It's investing billions of dollars into its program. Um, it's invested tens of millions of miles in simulation. It's going to argue that the benefits of saving lives overall is going to outweigh the risk to any one person. Um, but it's not entirely up to them, is it? Well, it isn't. And, you know, I mean, I got to say that that is a reasonable, that that is a reasonable policy point to make from a, a manufacturer. That is to say, we're spending a lot of money to make this safe. And I'm, I'm in this hypothetical, I'm assuming that they actually are doing it and it's in good faith and all those things, that that is a fair point. But that is not the way the uh, the law or any given case would work. We don't get to go into the courtroom on either side of the 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 V, as they say, plaintiff V, plaintiff versus defendant. Neither side gets to go in and make policy arguments about you know what should be that kind of thing. That's that's a matter left to the legislature. That's a matter that in some cases is left to higher courts by higher. I mean you know appellate courts, supreme courts, uh, about what the policy should be in a trial. The law is what the law is, and the law is that the plaintiff gets to choose what their theory of liability is, and that means they get to elect to you know, pursue either or or both a consumer expectations test theory or a risk-benefit analysis theory, and a manufacturer you know, on a policy level might say, well, geez, I want to talk about the risks and benefits because we put a lot of money into this. The law of our state says that's not good enough. It says that even if you did put a lot of money into it, we still want the products in our state to satisfy the expectations of the ordinary consumer. So, I mean, that's the reason why a plaintiff is able to elect what their theory of liability is, because the state wants those 
rights and protections vindicated. I mean, that's the whole reason we have these jury instructions because the state wants these laws that are embedded and imbued in these jury instructions. It wants them to be the laws by which we all live by because, it, you know, because by virtue of hundreds of years of thinking and thought and accidents and injuries and recovery and all that, these are the way, these, these are the rules by which our society should, should operate. So on a policy level, that's an interesting point you make, but the law is what the law is. And the plaintiff gets to vindicate the rights that are given to him or her by the state. And one of those is that our products should not violate our reasonable expectations. And this is obviously a, a huge exposure threat to manufacturers, this strict liability, product liability scheme. They are going to want to mitigate that exposure, give themselves some kind of immunity, protect themselves from you know, being sued to oblivion. Um, I think you said that earlier. Did somebody, did somebody say that in your podcast? Yeah, I think I did in the Autonocast. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about preemption. Yeah. The House Bill 3388 establishes rules for motor vehicle safety. They're going to promulgate some standards over time. Nothing is going to preempt state common law. States like California would still be able to apply whatever law governs a situation, whether it's product liability, negligence, what have you. But there's a movement to have the standards set at a national level. Basically, get rid of all state case law, common law, and go by what the federal government dictates. Um, there's an awful lot of money flowing into lobbying on behalf of the manufacturers, and there's a real danger that they could get their way here. Do you have some thoughts on that? Uh, you know, I, I absolutely do. And, you know, here, here is the notion behind preemption. There is, constitutionally, there's a supremacy clause, and it says that federal law shall effectively be the law of the land. And if there's conflicts in state law between federal law or between state and federal law, the federal law uh, wins. Um, and there are, you know, there are some, I think, all right arguments to be made in favor of that. Um, that was a, a absolutely fantastic way to ensure that civil rights uh, laws were enforced in places where state law sure as heck wouldn't have done so, uh, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and of course, probably all the way up to today. But it is a frightening thing to have a centralized rulemaking entity that decides what the law is, period, with regard to the operation of products in our society. Because this centralized rulemaking entity, whether it's you know NHTSA or NTSB or, or whatever it is, is so a few, a few problems, one of which is it's so subject to being captured by, uh, you know, corporate interest. And this happens all of the time. Who is the director of the Environmental Protection Agency? I mean, Scott Pruitt. Um, you could not have a more captured, at least from the top, governmental entity than, than the EPA right now. And of course, there's, you know, a lot of competition for that, that not very, not very sought after honor right now. But if you have corporations who are controlling and capturing these governmental entities, which are turning around and issuing the regulations which we all live by, the you know the charter or goal of NHTSA or NTSB or whichever entity we're talking about, which presumably has to do with product safety and you know safety on our roads, is going to it's not going to be that that's not going to be the actual priority. It's not going to actually happen. Rules are going to be made that protect companies from people who they injure. I mean, that, that is what's going to happen. We've seen it happen a hundred times before. It will happen that way. So if on paper, the notion of a centralized 
scheme makes some sense, that unfortunately is not even remotely close to how our country operates right now. So as a practical matter, it doesn't work whatsoever. Now, let me just give you another problem with it. You know, there's this notion that states are the laboratories of democracy. You know, they are places where we get to experiment with, you know, how to govern how to govern people. You know, we've got 50 states. They're all different. They all have different governments, different rules, and some of them work better than others. I mentioned earlier earlier that California is a pioneer in lawmaking. Uh, and that a host of law has started in California and spread across the country. That's because California had the freedom to experiment with you know, new rules, new approaches to governing that became popular with not only Californians, but other, member, you know, other states in the country, such that they changed their law to do what we're doing. Uh, so if you have a centralized authority, not only are you going to have the constant risk that it will be captured by you know, moneyed interests – creating practical problems that I don't think you can get around, um, you're also going to be robbing us of one of the things that makes us truly great, which is that each is that, you know, is, which is that we improve our democracy over time by having new and different approaches and letting them succeed or fail instead of having some centralized government tell us what the rule has to be. And there's an argument from the manufacturers that the performance of our car is going to be the same in New York as it is in Texas, as it is in California, what they don't want is to have greater exposure to their car in California or you know, from one state to another. They need to be able to count on a, a standard of care that's going to be equal everywhere. What do you say to that argument? Well, they already are subject to uh, different regulations in different states, period. I mean, every state has its own different uh, common law, tort law, because that's what works in that state. You know, what works in Oklahoma does not work in California. And what works in Washington probably doesn't always work in Georgia. I mean, each state has its own rules right now. And for, you know, it's a common claim from industry that it'll be impossible to do X or Y because we'll have a quote unquote patchwork of regulations. I mean, that is a tired, worn out phrase that has not stopped the American economy as far as I can tell. To date, you know, so I mean, it's never been an actual problem before. I don't know why it's going to be an actual problem uh, in the future. Plus, I mean, look at emission standards in California. I mean, that has not caused the auto industry to stop selling cars in California or to stop innovating with regard to uh, emissions. Uh, so, you know, it, it is it is one of these refrains, which is uh, I, I got to tell you, precious little more than just words. And you brought up the EPA earlier and Scott Pruitt, you know, not everyone knows that there's a national clean air act that generally preempts state regulation, but the state of California is exempt mm -hmm. because we've demonstrated that our rules are at least as protective as the federal standard. Um, that has allowed us to innovate. And it turns out other states have followed us. And now all the auto manufacturers are following us with their emissions. And so I just today promoted an op-ed from a professor, Sarah Light, at Wharton School of Business, who basically says that just that, let's let the states innovate with their uh, regulatory policies. And California actually started that way. California, after Nevada, was first to pass rules for autonomous vehicle safety. They sort of abandoned that in the second and third drafts just because they were expecting the federal government to use preemption to take away California's ability to um, control the safety of the cars. 
Okay, well, thank you, Spencer. That was very enlightening. We are going to have to talk uh, further in the future about these issues. This is a reminder to everyone that while we are attorneys, we are not your attorneys. This is not legal advice. We are not telling you what you should do. Um, and because this is an entirely new area of law, we could be entirely wrong. So how about that? That's a good disclaimer, is it not? I think that we have disclaimed appropriately. <laughs> okay. Many, many thanks, Spencer. Let's do it again very soon. Sounds great, Jim. Thank you. 